This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's Living the Bream with the host of Fox News Sunday, Shannon Bream. This week on Living the Bream, you guys know I love a good book and a fantastic author. And that is who we have today. This guy has more than 20 New York Times bestsellers, which, I mean, all of us dream for one. Um, he is amazing. And it's like everything he touches turns to literary gold. He's got a brand new bestseller out called Deadfall. Brad Thor joins us today. Great to have you on Live in the Bream. It's great to be here, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Scott Harbath. And by the way, when I brought this book home and my husband saw it, he was like, see you later. <laughs> so I haven't even had a chance to read it. I have to get the cliff notes from him. But he's a big fan of Scott Harbath and all of his um, adventures around the world. So in this plot, it actually deals with Ukraine. So do you pull things from the headlines where do you get your inspiration? Because your stuff is so spot on and electrifying and page turning. How do you do it? Well, you know, it, it is just the way my mind works. I like to look at current events. I'm a voracious consumer of news. So, you know, I'm always on Fox. I'm on foxnews.com and I'm watching TV and I'm constantly gathering information saying, is this the way it's really working? What if it happened this way? What if this happened? And I also grew up reading great World War II era thrillers like uh, mm. Where Eagles Dare, Alistair mm -hmm. McLean. And I always wanted to take my guy who's an ex-Navy SEAL who becomes America's top spy and drop him into a land war in Europe. But there weren't Ooh. any land wars until Ukraine happened. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, this is really interesting because America can't put troops into Ukraine because it'll escalate. And then America's officially at war with Russia. But I said, what would we do if some Americans who didn't have the good sense to get out of Ukraine before this happened <laughs> got taken hostage? And how would America handle sending their top spy in? Essentially, they'd have to fire him, disavow any knowledge, and then let him go and join the Ukrainian International Legion with no backup and try to find these Americans and get them out. And uh, that's kind of the seed, the idea that uh, Deadfall sprung from. Okay, so do you think there are Scott Harvaths in Ukraine oh. right now? I mean, we just don't know. But now that you introduce this, I'm like, wait a minute. I know a lot of them that are on the edges of Ukraine that are mm -hmm. in NATO countries like Romania and Poland mm -hmm. and things like that. So they're there. And I know that we have technical people in Ukraine teaching them how to use the weapon mm -hmm. systems. And you know, and we're working hand in glove with Ukrainian intelligence and trying to help them uh, do things. They're super clever. The stuff they've been doing against the Russians. There's some stuff I put mm -hmm. in the book, some tricks they're playing on the Russians that you would never believe would be successful. And yet they've been able to just con the <laughs> Russians into stuff and trick them. So yeah, I, the, I think those Scott Harvests are out there poised to go if need be. But I think we're being very careful of, I mean, you see it in the news too. We're being very careful as to mm -hmm. what we commit and when we commit it to Ukraine. Yeah, the president's been very clear. He does not want the U.S. to be drawn into a direct conflict or even something viewed as a proxy conflict with Russia, even though Russia is going to characterize it that way publicly um, for its purposes of coming after the the West. Um, okay, so how much in these books do you talk to experts? People have done this stuff. You talk about some of the tricks and things that are in the book. How much do you rely on kind of 
picking the brain of a really good expert who can say, this is the weapon they would have used. This is how they would have plotted this out. Massively. So I'm in your neck of the woods all the time. I'm in D.C. Mm -hmm. I'm in Northern Virginia. And, uh, you know, my joke is is that I buy a lot of steak dinners and pitchers of beer uh, because (laughs) I like to sit down every time, every time. I like to sit down and talk to people who have been there, done that and have the spent shell casings, as I uh, refer to Mm -hmm. it, uh, to prove that they've done this. Because that kind of verisimilitude, the, the, that attention to detail is really important to me because I have not only you know regular moms, dads, sons, daughters, cousins, uncles who read my books, mm-hmm. but I've got people in the intelligence community who work at the State Department, who have worked in Republican administrations and Democrat administrations who read these books and enjoy them. And they enjoy them because they say, you know, it's a white knuckle thrill ride, but you get the small stuff right. You get the details right. And I'm that's that's the Midwesterner in me. My dad was a United States Marine and I was taught, you know, even if you're going to be a broom pusher, be the best broom pusher you can. And at the end of the day, I don't work for Simon & Schuster. I work for the readers. And so mm-hmm. they're my employers. And when they go to Goodreads or Amazon or wherever to leave their five stars, that's my annual performance review. And I want nothing <laughs> short of five stars. Well, they keep putting you on the bestseller lists all over the place and the five stars. Do you ever stop and have a moment of doubt where, oh, I don't know what my next plot's going to be? Do you have writer's block? How do you fight through things like that? Or do you have a system for like sitting down and writing and knowing where you're going? So it happens every year. I get writer's block. I think anybody who's honest will <laughs> tell you done. they get writer's block. Uh, it's, yeah, it's. You know, the probably the best piece of advice I ever heard to overcome writer's block, because it tends to be something that plagues perfectionists. So you're Mm -hmm. worried, am I writing this correctly? Is there a better way to write it? And you freeze. Uh, The best advice I ever heard was give yourself permission to write a crummy first draft. Uh, That takes the pressure off. And if you're even a halfway decent writer, the draft's not going to be crummy. It's actually going to be good. But if the tap isn't open, the water doesn't flow. And you can't edit what's not written. So you just you have to sit down and just type it, even if you're not completely feeling it. You just have to force yourself. Do you have sort of a time frame? Do you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to write four hours a day, I'm going to write six hours a day? Or is every book a different experience for you? Every book turns out to be a different experience for me, but I do have a goal. Uh, I, I'm trying to get at least 2,000 words a day, which is about four single space pages. And that can, that can be tough. Mm-hmm. And that means that some days I stay at the office longer. Uh, you know, I'm a dad, or at least I was until this summer. I'm still a dad, but uh, my youngest <laughs> is off to college next month. So, wow. uh, you know, I always wanted to be home by six so I could eat dinner and help with homework and spend time with my family because it's, you know, my, my marriage of my family come before my my career, uh, as hard as I work as an author, I still want to be around, I, particularly as the kids leave the nest and that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, so it's four single space pages uh, that I try to crank out every day. Some days I don't make it. Some days I overshoot it, which is good. So that makes up for the slower days. Mm-hmm. When was the point in your life when you realized you talk about what you enjoyed growing up and reading these specific authors and and subjects and things that i I mean for me when i was a kid we didn't have money so i loved the library i still go people think i'm Mm -hmm. a weirdo a 50 something woman who has a library card and loves to use it not (laughs) afraid to use it um but i found that i could go anywhere in the world and learn about any subject with books my my mom i really credit with that because she was a teacher and taught me to read and said you can figure out anything if you can read 
Um, so I had this great level of reading coming up too. When did you realize though for you it was going to be a passion, a career, that you were actually going to be good enough at it to do this? Well, it's funny. I, I was a big reader as a kid too. And we'd spend summers in Wisconsin. My parents had a cottage and I had a library card and it was a big deal for me to go and you know take out five books, a stack of books. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually swiped a lot of my parents' books, particularly during the summers when they would uh, put down uh. a John le Carre book or a Clancy book, I'd grab it. And I was probably mm-hmm. reading- Not childhood reading usually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, they, they probably should not have allowed me to get my hands on those books. But I knew from a very early age, this is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I was afraid, what if I fail? So when I graduated, I actually switched my majors in college, didn't tell my parents uh, that I switched from uh, business administration and economics over Surprise. to creative writing and, and uh, film and TV production. And uh, when I graduated college, I'd save money. I, I rented apartments. Uh, that's what I did. I leased apartments when I was in college. And I saved money. A friend of mine had a room in uh, in her family's apartment in Paris. And I went over to write a book. And I got a couple chapters into it. And I had that voice in the back of my head that I think a lot of us have. Ooh, boy. What if, what if, this, what if you fail? Is it really worth embarrassing yourself? Maybe you shouldn't even try to write this book. Better mm-hmm. to not write it than to write it and not succeed, not get it published, write a bad book. And I, I I let myself succumb to that. And I shipped my laptop back home. I traveled the world, came back with a great idea to do a budget travel series uh, on mm. public television because I thought travel made me a better American to see my country from abroad <laughs> and realize how lucky I was. And mm-hmm. I got the show on the air on public television. I did a couple of seasons. It was coast to coast. But on my honeymoon, Shannon, my wife looked at me and she said, let me ask you something. Interesting question on the honeymoon. You would think you'd ask this before you even got married, but what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting, right? Great question. And I answered, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, okay, when we get home, you're going to start spending two hours a day, protected time, and you're going to make that dream happen. And that launched I me. love that. I, and what a yeah. great thing to to have a spouse who is an encourager and kind of a to feed your dream and to to help you believe that you could do this. Absolutely. I wanted to marry Meg Ryan, and that's exactly who I married. I lucked out. <laughs> but even better. Um, yes, okay, even better so, than Meg Ryan. So um, what is it like for you to, um, you know, see your books like in, in the yeah, anywhere. I mean, like in the airport and at yeah. any bookstore and see it on the top of the list. I mean, do you still get that little bit of a thrill after, you know, 20 plus books in? Absolutely. It it never gets old. And it, it, and I never slow down. I'm pushing as hard for the release of this book for Deadfall mm-hmm. than I do. I, I do the same thing every single book. You could write the greatest book in the world, but if people don't know about it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it doesn't do you as an author any good. So, yeah, it's still fun. And I, when fans post pictures of, oh, I love this book, or I just went through the airport and I saw your book, and my daughter is studying abroad this summer, and uh, she took pictures as she was traveling to her destination and seeing it in uh, seeing last year's book in paperback in the airport bookstores. And that's kind of fun, too, is the kick mm-hmm. my family gets out of it. That's really nice. So when you look ahead to the next thing that's coming, do you already have a book or two mapped out, ideas mapped out? Does Scott tell you where he's going next? What happens? <laughs> so it's funny. Uh, people ask me, where do you get your ideas? And I say, I normally get them in the shower. It's when I'm mm. relaxed. The second glass of wine in the shower. Uh, <laughs> That's you know, the secret for all of us, whatever we're working on. 
right? That's it's the moment we stop trying to force it that it comes. Uh, I'm looking at several things in the news now. I haven't hit on exactly where I see things going uh, for for next year because it, my buddy Dan Brown who wrote Da Vinci Code. Dan yes. gave me a wonderful blurb once. Dan said, Brad Thor's thrillers are as current as tomorrow's headlines. Uh, and that's very flattering. Mm-hmm. In fact, the government hired me, uh, brought me into something called the Analytic Red Cell Program to help after 9-11 to kind of anticipate where the bad guys might try mm-hmm. to attack us next. So mm-hmm. my brain is always working that way. What's next? Where Where are things that maybe we're not looking at? Uh, so anyway, that's a long answer to, I don't know. I'm looking at several things and I haven't figured out out what's next yet we'll have more live in the bream in a moment it's time to take the quiz five questions five minutes a day five days a week take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did play share and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox do you ever think there will be an end to scott and there will be someone else or are we going to be in the nursing home with scott all of us <laughs> Because he could still be solving capers there. He could. He could. Uh, And that's part (laughs) of the push pull that he he has in these books is that his organization, his agency says you have too much institutional experience. You have Mm -hmm. too much wisdom in the field to keep going out and doing this. You should be developing the next team, the next generation Mm. that's coming up behind you. Uh, If we lose you, we lose a lot. But he's kind of got this complex where he thinks nobody can do it as well as he does. And the Mm -hmm. threats America's facing are too important for him to sit behind the desk. So that's a that's a cool question because he wrestles with that in every single book. So what do you see looking out across the landscape uh, aside from fiction work? I mean, where are the hotspots that you think maybe we're missing? What do you think about things like AI and, you know, other frontiers or threats more maybe not looking at since the government trusts you as an expert and we know how prescient your books are too. Yeah. So it's it, things are moving very quickly with AI. And that's that's an area that I am very concerned about, not as an author. So far, I've tried. I've messed around with ChatGPT and BARD, the Microsoft uh, version of AI. Mm-hmm. And there is no human ingenuity in AI. There's no creative spark. I ask it to give me an idea for a novel and they all stink. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not that worried about it taking my job. But when you start, what I'm worried about is that AI is going to be able to process, kind of go through a decision tree quicker than a human being can. And that we're going to see potentially military applications for AI where we take the human uh, the human factor out of it. And that to me is terrifying that we might eventually get to the point where we either think it's a good idea to let AI make kill, no kill decisions, or mm-hmm. our enemies are using it in such a fashion that we can't afford to be behind the power curve and we'll have to trust our own AI to react even faster than the enemy. Uh, it puts China much more in focus in keeping mm-hmm. uh, microchips out of the hands of the Chinese, the kind that are needed to to run sophisticated AI. But the, 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 the bad guys out there are still the bad guys, right? It's the Chinese, it's the North Koreans, it's the Iranians, it's the Russians, uh, to greater or lesser 
lesser degrees down in Venezuela. So a lot of the bad guys are still bad guys. And uh, autocracy is still on the march. We are we are going more towards autocracy than we are democracy. So we've got multi-pronged fronts where we have to be focusing. I think we're juggling more dangerous uh, hand grenades with the pins out of them than ever before in the United States. Mm -hmm. Do you think, because listen, you probably know many of them and I do too. I mean, I think that there are good people on both sides of the aisle up on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. But do you think more broadly we get it, some of these threats? I mean, the I think about the the select subcommittee they have on China that seems to have very bipartisan agreement. Like this is a real threat to us economically, potentially militarily in other ways. Um, so there seems to be some bipartisan working together on the big issue of China. But do you think more broadly that Capitol Hill gets what we're up against and what they need to be doing to counter it? So first of all, the, uh, the subcommittee on China is fantastic. In fact, Robert O'Brien, who was the mm -hmm. national security advisor under President Trump, is a really good friend of mine. Uh, I dedicated my book Backlash a couple of years ago to to Robert, and I was just chatting with him yesterday. So that subcommittee is an example of how Washington can work well. So mm -hmm. I, I agree completely with you. I think that's that is a prime example of something that's being done very, very well there. I get concerned. Listen, I, I'm going to say something to a TV person, uh, and I hope you take it the right way. I think cameras are the worst thing to happen to Congress. I think C-SPAN mm. and cameras, I think it's just, I think it's terrible. I think as much as I'm a guy for transparency and Congress mm -hmm. keeping their nose out of as much as possible, I think I think cameras turn uh, some Congress people, not all of them, but I think it turns them into showboaters. And I think you you see with the rise in small dollar donations and how campaigns are really, you know, it's gone from, you know, people maxing out at certain levels to, well, if I can get, you know, a thousand people to send in a hundred dollars, that's a great deal. And how do I get that? Well, I do that during one of the hearings by being outrageous and getting a moment that goes viral. Viral. And that I can use to gin up more support and to bring in more of those dollars. So I'm concerned that there's a certain kind of performance art that is uh, kind of taking center stage in Congress versus, uh, you know, protecting and defending the Constitution and doing the nation's business. I'm a big fan of term limits. I'd like to see, I know a lot of people say you lose kind of that institutional knowledge when you term limit uh, Congress people, congressmen and women, you know, senators. And so in, in both, on both sides, but uh, I, I get worried that there's a lot of serious things we've got going, meeting our military uh, recruitment levels. The Marines keep doing it. The Marines are amazing when it comes to recruiting. But the other branches are having <laughs> trouble. Uh, yeah. yeah. And we've got we've got issues with needing, you know, more uh, ships in our Navy. There's there's some really serious issues we face right down to the national debt, which I look at as a national security issue, too. Mm -hmm. So we need less performance artists and more serious uh, lawmakers in Congress, in my opinion. Yeah. And I I get what you're saying about the cameras. And I think that's why the Supreme Court, the justices have been so reticent to bring them mm -hmm. in there. I mean, because of COVID, we got the audio, which was really helpful for coverage because we couldn't go sit in the in the courtroom. And so I think they sure. recognize the national interest in doing that. But, you know, many of the justices, I think almost every one of them in recent years, when they've been asked during their confirmation hearings, would you support cameras? I mean, there are certain lawmakers that really want to push for it, I think, because they know the experience now. They're on C-SPAN. And I think for those very reasons, many of the justices have said, you know, listen, unless we all agree, we're not doing it. And they do worry about the lawyers, the justices, anybody mm -hmm. sort of grandstanding in there. And it's one of those few places that's very old school here in D.C. So, I mean, I love getting to cover it, but I, I feel the weight of coming out and explaining everything when people can't watch it themselves. 
And I do worry, and I think the justices worry too, some of them, that snippets will be taken. It will be used in political Mm -hmm. ads. It'll be taken out of context. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, it's pretty wonky in there. I think most of the stuff people would not be super excited um, to see. But again, would it prompt those moments of showbiting by anybody in the room? We'll have to see. Okay, let me ask you this. If people have not read your books to now, can they jump in with Scott Harbeth? And can they get the plot? Where should they start? You are awesome. I love this question. And I always tell people that my novels are like the James Bond movies. If you have never seen a James Bond movie and there's a brand new one in the theaters, you can go right out and see it. You are not Mm -hmm. at a loss for anything. And my thrillers are the same way. So the new one's Deadfall. You can jump right in. You are not going to feel like, wow, I didn't read the other Brad Thor books. I should have. Nope. You can start with Deadfall and hopefully I'll hook you and you'll want to go back and Mm -hmm. read the other ones. But yeah, you can, you walk into your bookstore, there's a Brad Thor book. It doesn't matter if it's number five, if it's number 22, you're good. As soon as I can get Deadfall back from my husband, then I will catch up on Scott and I will be um, ready for the next one. And we will all be anxiously awaiting. Brad Thor, thank you so much for telling us a lot more about what you do, how you do it, and how we should be thinking about the world. Great to have you on Live in the Bream. I'm thrilled to have been here. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 